What uh, do we need to keep going as Christians? What do we need to keep going as Christians? What do we need to experience? What do we need to know? What do we need to set our minds on to make sure we live good lives now and in paradise forever? I wonder uh, what springs to mind when you hear that question. What do we need uh, as believers to keep going? Um, We've been looking at Mark's Gospel for a while now. And last time, Phil Warner preached on a very, very important bit of Mark's gospel, the end of chapter eight. Uh, Chapters one to eight are all about who Jesus is, his identity. Chapters nine to the end are all about Jesus' mission, what he's come to do, his death and his resurrection. And the hinge point is here uh, at the end of chapter uh, eight in verse 29. Jesus says this. But what about you? Who do you say I am? And Peter says in 8.29, you are the Messiah. And after this, uh, Jesus begins to teach plainly about what he's come to do. Um, Plainly, without parables, that the Messiah must suffer and die. Um, And Peter is shocked. Uh, He is abhorred at what Jesus says. He complains. He he doesn't think the Messiah should suffer and die. Um, But Jesus says something different, doesn't he? Um, He says that being a Christian is all about suffering now, glory later. Um, Suffer now, glory later. And that's what Jesus has just said before chapter 9. Let me read those verses. Um, Chapter 8, verse 34 says, Then he called the crowd to him, along with his disciples, and said... Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for my gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? What can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me, And my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with holy angels. Jesus saying the Christian life is not easy. It is not one that looks great on the outside. It's not one that looks like gain and comfort now. It's one that's going to stand out in the adulterous and sinful world around us. But if we stick to it, Jesus says at the end of chapter 8, we will gain everything. If we really lose our lives, we will save them. But um, I'm sure you know, and I know that um, most people in this room know much more than me, that maintaining that life, keeping on going, when life is about loss now, uh, is hard. So what do we need to know to keep us going And that's where Mark chapter 9 comes in. That's where the transfiguration comes in. Um, Verse 1 of chapter 9, just after he said these really, really hard things, he starts to tease some encouragement. Verse 1, he said to them, Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God has come with power. We start to see... Christ's provision and power in preserving his people um, in verse 1. And Jesus is setting up 
the story that Rich has just read. Uh, he says to the crowd, some of you here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God come with power. Now, some people might interpret that in some different ways. You might read some other things. But one of the things that definitely is true is Peter, James and John are in the crowd. And Jesus says to that crowd, some of you here, and I think he's talking about Peter, James and John, will see the kingdom of God come with power. So, uh, how do we keep going as Christians? I've got three lessons for us this evening. Firstly, we need to see the glorified Jesus by faith. How do we keep going as Christians? We need to see the glorified Jesus by faith. Uh, Let me read verses (coughs) two and three again. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. Jesus says to these three disciples, let's go for a hike. And it's not the first time he's talked to just these three. Uh, In Mark chapter 5, when Jesus heals Jairus' daughter, only Peter, James and John come with him. Um, These three men are also three of the first four disciples, uh, so they play a key role in chapter one. They're also the same three he takes a little further with him in Gethsemane as well. And that raises the question, why this inner circle? Why is Jesus just picking these three? Um, It's interesting that in Galatians, Paul describes John and Peter Um, alongside the other James, Jesus' brother, as pillars of the church, as people that the church is built on. So maybe there is something in there of Jesus is giving his leaders in the church something extra to help them equip the church later. But I wonder what these three were expecting at the top. I wonder if you've thought about that before, as they're walking up with Jesus. He's just said, come on, let's go up this high mountain. Uh, Maybe they're expecting a prayer vigil. Jesus has done this already in Mark. He's walked up, he's found found lonely places to pray alone. No doubt, Peter, James and John feel really important that they've been chosen to go up this mountain. Uh, Maybe they're thinking they're seeing something that Jesus has been keeping to himself. But when they reach the summit, they have something amazing, don't they? Um, Something that we really, really need to hold on to. We're going to try and walk up this mountain by faith. They walk up to the top, and there Jesus is transfigured, transformed before them. His clothes became dazzling white, transformed in front of their eyes, their teacher, their friend, the man they've eaten with, the man they've travelled with, the man they've seen get tired and hungry, is shown to be so much more, isn't he? He's shown them already with his actions in calming the storm and healing people. But now it's Jesus's appearance that shows he is something remarkable, uh, completely dazzling. Um, that's quite a unique phrase used in verse three for just how kind of why I'm not sure Mark really has the words to describe what Jesus looks like. Um, You can think of any miraculous kind of light you can think of, the most beautiful sunrise, the most spectacular fireworks show, um, the most stunning maybe wedding dress, dazzling white, 
capturing everyone's attention at church, but really, Mark doesn't really have the words, does he? His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. Like, he's just saying there's nothing on earth we can really compare or achieve to such purity, such beauty, such holiness that Jesus shows to Peter and James and John. Now imagine if Peter, James and John, when Jesus said, let's go for a hike, imagine they said, mm, we'd, we'd rather stay and debate about bread with the other disciples. Mm, we'd rather not uh, go up to the top. Um, that were, they'd miss out on so much, wouldn't they? They'd miss out on a lot if they didn't walk up that mountain. And that is what we're like. That's what we're like when we don't try and see Jesus for who he is when we squander opportunities to see the glorified Jesus. So tonight, let's look on this Jesus. Let's, let's try and fix our minds on this Jesus who is so different to every, everyone else. So, um, it's just easy, I think. It's easy to become familiar. I, I'm not sure anyone in this room this is the first time you've ever heard the story of the transfiguration. But it's so easy for it to just be a story. So easy for it to be something that we don't fix our minds on. Let's let uh, this beautiful vision uh, fill our minds. And for Peter, James and John, just, just think about that again. That they've, they've seen Jesus, they've, they've seen him do things, but, but this whole time they've known Jesus, he's always had his glory veiled. He's always still looked human even though the things he's been doing and saying are miraculous but but James and John and Peter they, they see that stripped away don't they they see past the veil in a way that, that really many other humans haven't um, they are as close as it's humanly possible to seeing God on earth here in Mark 9 this is Emmanuel isn't it this is God with us right in front of their eyes in space and time on a hill for humans to see Jesus, who uh, has always been this, has just revealed that to them. Unimaginable glory, inexpressible praise. And it's not the first time humans have got a kind of glimpse of Jesus. Uh, in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel says this, As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow. The hair on his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire and wheels were all ablaze and thousands upon thousands attended him. And, he, and, and Daniel goes on a, a bit later. In, in my vision at night, Daniel says, there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, Sovereign power, all nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is, is one that will never be destroyed. See, Daniel's already had a glimpse. Peter, James and John, they get, they get an even greater glimpse, don't they? Because Daniel's vision, it, it was just in a dream. He wasn't, he wasn't physically um, there in front of Jesus. But Peter and John here, they're, they're physically there. They're, they're in touching distance of God on earth. John gets a similar vision as well in Revelation chapter 1. 
Uh, John says this, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. And in his right hand he held seven stars, coming out of his mouth with a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all of its brilliance. I wonder though, by, by faith, can you, can you really see that Jesus tonight? Can you really picture that Jesus in your mind? Are you really treasuring the day when you really do see uh, that Jesus? One of the single best uses of our time here on earth is to try and make sure our minds are really full of those visions of Jesus. Maybe, if you haven't already, try and learn one of those passages, Daniel 7, Revelation 1, by heart. Verse by verse, step by step, as we walk up that mountainside by faith to see the glorified Jesus. How, I bet, some of the disciples were envious of Peter, James and John, that they got to walk up that hill. Um, What people in history would have given... (coughs) to see that glorified Jesus. And yet, when we get the nearest thing on offer, treasuring him in our minds by fixing our eyes on scripture, we don't do it, do we? How often we neglect uh, such a short journey that would reap such spiritual rewards. It's silly, isn't it? It's, it's, it's as silly as Peter, James and John refusing to go up the mountainside. That's what we, that's what we do as well. How can we keep going as Christians We've we've got to fix our minds on this Jesus. It's so easy to get distracted. But there's more here in Mark 9. There's more here to help us keep going uh, as we make our journey to heaven. So first, try and see Jesus by faith. Second lesson Mark's got for us tonight. Listen to the glorified Jesus. Listen to the glorified Jesus. Let me read um, from verse 4. And there appeared... Before them, Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's it's good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses and one for Elijah. He didn't know what to say. They were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and covered them. And a voice came down from the cloud. This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone there except Jesus. See, the vision, the events, they get more startling, they get more confusing, I think. They certainly got confusing for Peter. James and John and Peter now see Elijah and Moses talking to Jesus, verse 4. And Peter's got no clue, does he? Mark, Mark's gospel is heavily influenced by Peter. Um, Mark... Uh, There is an early uh, church historian that describes Mark as Peter's interpreter, Peter's kind of scribe. Um, So maybe uh, Mark has got these words literally from Peter when 
Verse 6, he didn't know what to say because they were so frightened. Perhaps Peter literally told Mark that. He's got no clue what to say. He offers to build these, these tents um, and the cloud appears. It covers them. The only one's left Jesus. And there's just a lot to unpack here. There's just a lot of Old Testament imagery. There's a lot of uh, Old Testament shadows um, with Jesus as the light in the middle. Moses and Elijah for sure here represent the whole Old Testament. Elijah here represents the prophets. Moses represents the law, the first five books. All of God's instructions, all of God's warnings, all of his blessings and curses, his promises and their anticipation, um, all leading up to, all talking to, all communicating with Jesus. We don't know what they said. Mark doesn't account it. Maybe Peter and James and John couldn't hear what Elijah and Moses were saying to Jesus. But we do know what Moses has said already. In Deuteronomy 18, Moses says this, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him. Moses said that over a thousand years before. Perhaps he is repeating that. We don't know what their conversation was. We do know Elijah and all the prophets concerning this salvation spoke of the grace that was to come and searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. That's from 1 Peter. Perhaps Peter wrote those words with a wry smile, remembering when he saw one of the prophets searching intently and talking to Jesus decades earlier. If, we have, if you have spent any time looking at the Old Testament, you know that all of the promises of the Old Testament find their fulfilment in Jesus. All of those promises, predictions over hundreds of years from shepherds and kings and prophets, they, they all find their fulfilment in Jesus. He's the centre point, isn't it? He, he's the main event. The Old Testament's the warm-up act. But Peter, I don't think, gets this at all. He's still calling Jesus just rabbi in verse 5, just a human teacher. And it, it seems in verse 5 that Peter wants this moment to last longer. That's why he, he digs out these tents. He, he doesn't really, really seem to know what's going on or how long they're going to be there. He just wants the conversation to go on. And another mistake Peter for sure makes here is he gives tents to all three men. He's treating all three of these guys um, the same, isn't it? Uh, he, he, he prepares three shelters, three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. I'm not sure he should make tents. I think it would have been more appropriate maybe to build a throne for Jesus to sit on and Moses and Elijah to bow down to. That might have shown that Peter really appreciates who is not equal in that. And all notions of equality that Peter might have, they're, they're all crushed in verse 7 and verse 8. Uh, there's, a, there's a real stress on Jesus alone. Verse 7, then a cloud appeared and covered them. A voice came from the cloud. This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone. Elijah and Moses, they pass away. There's no one with them 
accept Jesus. There's so many mountainous parallels in scripture. Um, we, could play, we could play spot the similarities with, with many different events. Uh, perhaps the, the most striking one is in Exodus 24. In Exodus 24, Moses goes up a mountain with three named men, uh, just like Jesus did. They see and hear God. There is a great cloud that covers the mountain. In Exodus 24, there's even a mention of six days that we get here in Mark chapter 9. Um, and there's the giving of the law that people should listen to. Here in verse 7, there's no giving of new instructions. God just says, listen to him, listen to my son, whom I love. And at the end of Exodus 24, it's only Moses left up the mountain. And this time it's not only Moses, is it? Moses is gone. It's just Jesus. Just as God's people are called, uh, were called to listen to Moses and his law, just as God's people were, were called to listen to the prophets and heed their warnings. So all of God's people today, well, we've, we've got to do verse 7. We've got to listen to God's son, his loved son. That's a repetition of in chapter 1, when Jesus gets baptised, uh, God says the exact same thing, doesn't he? This is my son with whom I love, with whom I'm well pleased. Peter, James and John, God is saying in verse 7, this is my son, whom I love, listen to him. <coughs> listen to him. We've got to listen to him. And if our listening to God in the Bible, if our listening to Jesus in the Bible is not taking us to a place of wonder, like Mark chapter 9 takes us, something's going wrong. If our listening to the Bible isn't focused on the Son alone, verse 8, they looked around, they no longer saw anyone except Jesus. If, if that's not where our listening to Jesus takes us, then our emphasis is surely misplaced. This is God's Son, whom he loves. Listen to him. St. Augustine says, if Christ isn't valued above all, he isn't valued at all. If we don't listen to Christ above all, if our worship doesn't end at Christ above all, we're not really listening to him at all. M Moses and Elijah, they have important things to say. They have God's message to bring, but Jesus brings God. He is the message that Moses' law and Elijah's prophecy lands on. This is God's son. Listen to him. These words clearly stuck with Peter for decades. In, in 2 Peter, uh, decades after this vision, um, Peter thinks back to the transfiguration. Um, and he uses the transfiguration to prove that he really is one of God's messengers. Peter says this, We did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He received honour and glory from the Father when a voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, this is my son whom I love, with him I'm well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on that sacred mountain. 
What does that mean? It means, Peter goes on to say, we have the prophetic message as something completely reliable and you will do well to pay attention to it. You will do well to listen to it. Listen to God's reliable word confirmed by his power. But in Mark 9, it seems like that's not quite enough. It's not quite enough for Peter and James and John. It's a bit funny, isn't it? Um, Verse 9 to the end, they don't really seem to still get it then and there. Um, Let me read verse 9 to 13 again. As they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell uh, anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, why did the teachers of the law say Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, to be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is is it written that the Son of Man must suffer and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come and they have done to him everything they wished, just as it was written about him. See, Jesus' Jesus disciples, they, they still don't really get it. They've literally just seen the transfiguration. Um, they, they've heard the voice from the cloud. They, they just don't get it. They, they don't even really get what rising from the dead means. And there's confusion about Elijah and what role he plays. And we just saw him on the mountain and now he's gone. And one, one big issue is their anticipation of a Messiah is someone who's powerful. Their Messiah is someone that's not going to suffer and die. Their Messiah is someone that's going to come and conquer the Romans. And therefore, Elijah, who's going to come before the Messiah, must turn up in a really impressive way. Then the Messiah is going to be really impressive. And we see that. We see that in chapter 8. Peter doesn't think the Messiah should suffer. We see that in chapter 10. James and John, the two other guys that have gone up the mountain, they just want to be great. and and seek to be glorified, they don't get that the Christian life is suffering now and glory later. But Jesus says, Elijah has come. Um, That Elijah was John the Baptist, a voice calling in the wilderness. And Jesus says, they've done everything they wished to Elijah. You can read about it in Mark chapter 6. Quite a funny thing Mark does. Um, He has this really long flashback that Damien preached on a while ago about Mark, um, about John having his head chopped off for not wavering from his God-given message of repentance. Jesus says, that's happened. Elijah has prepared the way. That was John the Baptist. And Jesus is, he's just challenging their notion of a Messiah here. He's saying at the end of uh, this story we've looked at, He's saying to James and and John and Peter, if if that's how they treated Elijah, and there's nothing in the Old Testament that says Elijah's going to suffer, how much more is the Son of Man going to have to be suffer, suffer and rejected? Because his suffering is predicted. So not even the transfiguration, not even God speaking from the cloud, is enough to keep Peter, James and John going in Mark chapter 9. So what on earth is going to keep us going? Um, If it wasn't enough for them, and they literally saw it, they literally heard it, what's going to be enough for us? Um, Here's our last lesson this evening. 
What's going to keep us going? We will see the glorified Jesus face to face. And we will be made like him. What is going to ultimately keep Christians going? We are going to see the glorified Jesus more, even more than Mark chapter 9 describes. And we're going to be made like him. Jesus' glorification on that hill in Mark 9, it's a teaser for his resurrection glory. It's not the last hill Jesus goes up. And that second time he walks up a hill, there's no disciples with him. No one brave enough or loyal enough to follow closely. The Messiah suffers, he's rejected, he's beaten, mocked and scorned. But then he rises again. There's an instant we've skipped over um, in verse 9. Um, as they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. There, there's something about the resurrection that unlocks what the transfiguration is really all about. Why Peter, James and John got to see that. Because after the resurrection, Jesus' glory is no longer veiled. His human body is so glorified that Peter and James and John and all the other witnesses, they see him for what he really was, just like Thomas cries out. They see that he is their Lord and their God. And for us, we, we can go up that hill in Mark 9 with the eyes of faith now, but that will always just be a taster, won't it? That is always just an anticipation of the day when we really will lock eyes with the glorified Jesus. When we look around and verse eight, we no longer see anyone else. We no longer see anyone else but Jesus. Can, can you see and feel, can you feel how that is gonna keep you going as a believer here this evening? When our loved ones who are believers pass away, They've gone to see the glorified Jesus. They are just waiting for us to join. When our health fails, and for all of us, our health is failing and then will fail, but one day we will see the glorified Jesus. When relationships are strained, when work is overwhelming, when we feel like we're not doing enough with, with our kids or our marriage or our neighbours or our evangelism or our prayer life, well, one day we will see the glorified Jesus. And there is something just so staggering about that day that when we see him, we will be made like him. Those dazzling white robes in Mark 9 will be put on us as well. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable. The mortal will be clothed with immortality. Death will be swallowed up in victory those dazzling white garments they will be ours I was looking at the word white it's actually not used that often in the New Testament uh, it comes up a lot though in Revelation at the end we, we obviously get a reference to white here those dazzling white robes in Mark 9 but in Revelation there is a lot of white that is given to believers on that final day. There's a white stone, we're promised, white garments of God's people who persevere. Let me read from Revelation 7. This is where we're going. This is what you're going to spend eternity doing. 
if you believe in Jesus. After this, I looked, says John, and there before me was a great multitude no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people and language, even little Paxton. Standing before the throne, before the Lamb, they were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands and they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. How do we keep going in this world that's passing away? How do we keep going when, when Jesus says we've got to lose our life to gain it? Well, we keep going because we're waiting for those white robes, aren't we? Let me finish by reading uh, some words from a song that talk about meeting Jesus that I'm going to pray. Face to face with Christ my Saviour. Face to face, what will it be? When with rapture I behold him, Jesus Christ who died for me. Face to face I shall behold him. Far beyond the starry sky, face to face in all his glory, I shall see him by and by. Only faintly now I see him with the darkened veil between, but a blessed day is coming when his glory shall be seen. Face to face, O oh blissful moment, face to face to see and to know, face to face with my Redeemer, Jesus Christ, who loved me so. Let me pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for that vision, that appearance, that event that really happened to Peter and James and John, seeing those dazzling white robes. We thank you for those words from the clouds. Listen to him. We pray we would see more and more clearly how Elijah and the prophets, Moses and your law, point towards your son who is your message. I pray by your spirit you would help us to listen to him and that we would await that day, we would look forward to that day where we see him in all his glory and we put on our white robes as well. We pray in his name. Amen. Amen. Amen.